So today's reading starts 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, which is page 290. Verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. We're going to continue now in chapter 18, verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning, go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, 
But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. We're now going to continue from 19 verse 19. Word came to Saul. David is in Naioth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naioth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naioth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naioth. This is God's word. I'm, uh, I'm sad this is my last sermon, but I'm thrilled that this is the passage because I love this passage. This is fantastic stuff. Um, let's pray. Let's pray as we dive into this. Oh, great God and Father, this, uh, these next few minutes are going to be a complete waste of time unless you're speaking to us. Um, so we ask you, Lord, to speak through your words here in the Bible. Show us your son, Jesus, and show us how to respond to him in our lives today. Amen. Amen. Right, let me start with the question. Um, uh, how do you respond to other people's success? How do you respond when other people succeed? Like think of a time in your life when you've seen somebody else succeeding, being praised. Maybe it was a course mate at uni. Maybe it was a colleague at work. Maybe it was a family member. How, do you, how did you respond? What did it feel like? How do you respond uh, to other people's success. We can often be a mixture, can't we? I was speaking to a friend this week. Uh, he was a musician. And he told me about a time that uh, he went to a gig uh, and on stage there was a really talented musician who played the same instrument as my friend. But he's about 10 years younger. And he said he was at this gig and the guy was just nailing it. He was amazing, phenomenally talented. And he's under the spotlight and everyone's applauding. And my friend said, watching him succeed in that moment actually felt amazing. Because <laughs> um, this guy was so good, he just deserved it. My friend said, look, joining in the applause was genuine joy watching this guy succeed. But then my friend said, a couple of weeks later, I went on this guy's Instagram and the same guy had posted a, a demo video of a, a technical skill. And it was a skill that my mate had been working on and really struggling with. And, and my, my friend said that as he saw that video posted, suddenly he felt a bit different. Suddenly he felt this like pang of jealousy and sort of resentment um, to see this guy doing so well. Rejoicing, resenting. How, how do you react? How do you respond when you see other people succeed. Um, often the difference between those two is whether or not we feel threatened, personally, isn't it? Rejoicing, resenting. How do you respond to other people's success? Um, guys, in this passage today, uh, David, the king, the chosen king, the Messiah, he's just had an unbelievable success. 
And basically what we do is we see different people responding to it. This whole passage is about different people responding to the success um, of the Messiah. How will people respond to him? Rejoice or resent? That's the big question. Now, guys, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, um, you'll remember um, uh, we've, Israel's been looking for a king, a leader, and we saw uh, King Saul, um, who the people chose. He looked really impressive. We saw him rise and then fall. Um, uh, God rejected him. And now what we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks is David, uh, who God chose, and we're seeing him rise later in the Bible, he'll fall as well. Um, uh, but but uh, he, he, David, is God's chosen, uh, chosen king. And last week, if you were here, we saw he had this phenomenal success, right? There was this huge threat over the whole nation, Goliath. He stepped in to face the threat. He triumphed. Unbelievable success. And now the question for us this week is, how's everyone going to respond to that success? Especially Saul and his son Jonathan. How are they going to respond to the Messiah? That's the question that this passage really is going to ask you and me today as well. How, are you, how do you respond um, to the Messiah? As, as, as we saw last week, David, what David did here is an image of what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. In facing our greatest enemy, sin and death, we think about that last week, and triumphing over them. How will you respond to that? How do you personally respond to the Messiah? Right, that's the question we're thinking about this week. This passage can show us two responses, and they're the points um, on your handout. Uh, first, uh, first response, Jonathan, who loves him and gives him everything. Secondly, Saul resents him and tries to remove him. And then we're going to see two implications for us today. Jealousy leads to madness and every knee will bow. So that's where we're going. Guys, the big question for this week is this. How will you respond to the Messiah, to Jesus? How will you respond to him this week? First point then, Jonathan. Jonathan loves him and gives him everything. Have a look down at verse 1 with me. After David had finished uh, talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword and bow and belt. So we're returning from battle with Goliath where David's just triumphed. How's everyone going to respond? Jonathan, Saul's son, he's the prince, the heir to the throne. Uh, He sees what David has done. And do you notice how he responds in verse 1? He, he loves him. So where it says he became one, one with him in soul, in Hebrew, it's he, he knit his soul to David. So there's nothing, it's not a romantic phrase, but it's a phrase for deep attachment. He's deeply, deeply attached to David. But it's not just kind of affection. Notice verse 3, it says Jonathan made a covenant with him. A covenant, that's a binding agreement. A binding agreement. We don't know what the details of that agreement are, uh, but this is more than just like a feeling of friendship, right? This is a commitment, a deep commitment. And we get this beautiful picture of it in verse 4. Notice what he does in verse 4. He takes off his royal robe and he lays it down for David. Now, guys, I don't know if you know this. In the ancient Near East, 
to take off a royal robe and give it to someone else, that is a deeply symbolic act. Right? As Jonathan does that, he's giving David the right to the throne. Remember, Jonathan's the prince, right? If anyone has a right to be threatened by David, it's Jonathan. His whole future is going to change. The future he's always imagined for himself is going to change if David becomes king. But he sees David and he lays down his right to the throne. He says, you have it. And interestingly there, end of verse 4, he doesn't just stop there. He then also gives him his tunic, his sword, his bow and his belt. It's kind of like he starts searching in his pockets. He's like, what else? All right, okay. Okay, uh, my wallet. Here, have that. And uh, what else have we got? Okay. Uh, my earphones, have that. And uh, what else? Uh, my car keys. He, he's, just trying, he's trying to give him everything. I want to give you everything because I see you. I see you, David. I see that you're the Messiah. So I want you to have everything. But as, as, as Jonathan looks at David, he sees something bigger and better and more beautiful than his own petty ambitions. He sees, actually, I'm not the center of this story. I'm not the center. There's a story that's bigger than me. I'm not the center of God's plans for the world. The Messiah is. David, I see you. I see that that is you. And so I want to give you everything. I want to lay down everything for you. Now, it's a, that might sound nuts to us today, right? Because um, like in our culture, we're told that the way to be happy is um, like self-actualization. Do you know what I mean by that? We're told that today to be happy, what you have to do is you look inside your own heart and you find out uh, your, your, your true desires and then you live them out in the world and that's how to be truly happy. That's how to be truly satisfied. You look inside and then you live that out. And that's kind of the opposite of what David's doing, of what Jonathan's doing here. But I suppose if you think about it for a second, we do know, don't we, that there can be a there can be a deeper joy that comes from putting someone else first. Right? There can be a deeper joy that comes from putting someone else at the centre. Let me tell you about a guy I know called George. Um, George uh, loves football. His whole life he, he loved football and would play, play every Thursday night. It was a big part of his life playing football. Right? But then he had a son. And as his son grew up, it turned out his son was phenomenally talented. And his son got scouted by uh, the academy of a professional football team in another city. And so uh, for him to have his shot going pro, um, he had to be driven to these training sessions multiple times a week. And in order to do that, George had this choice. Do I keep playing football myself or do I lay that down so that my son can? And if he looked in his heart in that moment, he would have thought, oh, I'll keep playing football, thank you very much. But he didn't. He looked at his son and he thought, do you know what? I'm not the center of this story. I want my son to be the center. I want him to flourish. There's something beautiful about that, isn't there? And, and do you know what he'd say now? He would say there was a deeper joy. There was a deeper joy that came from not trying to be the center, but from, from allowing his son to be the center. Like Jonathan, guys, Jonathan in this passage, when he sees the Messiah, he realizes there's a bigger story than me and my ambitions. 
There's something more beautiful, more wonderful. And it's all centered around the Messiah. And so here, I want you to have everything. Have everything. And the amazing thing is, guys, that when, 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 when Jesus Christ, the ultimate Messiah, rocked up thousands of years later, the same thing happened. I don't know if you know this, but if you read the accounts of Jesus' life, like in Mark chapter 2, there's these guys, fishermen in a boat. They've been fishermen their whole lives. Jesus says, follow me. What do they do? Lay it down. They lay down their nets and just follow him. In fact, one of Jesus' followers put it this way. Could we have those verses from Philippians 3, 3 up? He says, what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christ, the word from Messiah. Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. As people see Jesus, they realize, do you know what? I'm not the center of the story. There's a bigger story. As I look at Jesus, I see there's something bigger than my petty ambitions. There's something more beautiful. There's something more wonderful. And so I want him to have everything. I want to revolve around him. Here, have my, have my keys, have my wallet, um, have, have, have my diary, you know, be in charge of my time. Because you're a saviour that I can never be. What you've done for me, what you can do for other people is so much more than what I could do. So I want you to be the center. I want to revolve around you. That's what Jonathan does. He sees the Messiah. How does he respond? He loves him and he gives him everything. That's one response. As we do that as well, like Paul in these verses, we, we, we discover that that doesn't actually diminish us. It's actually wonderfully liberating. There is a deeper joy that comes especially from putting Jesus Christ at the centre. That's one response, loving him and laying down everything. But that's not the only response that we get here in this passage. Uh, We also get Saul. Um, What we're going to see, Saul resents him and tries to remove him. Check out verse 5 with me. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased the troops and Saul's officers as well. Uh, When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, uh, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and tambourines and lyres. As they um, danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Do you see the difference there between his response and Jonathan's response? Right? As they're coming home, all these people come out to sing Saul's praises. But, 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 but he's, he, he hates it. He's frustrated because he's, the key line in the song is not about him. The key line in the song is about David. And Saul hates it. If he's the center of the song, then I'm not. And guys, it's like at that moment, a worm enters his soul and starts eating away at his heart. Resentment, jealousy sets in. And so check out what happens. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. 
because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in his campaign. So at first, David's kind of happy to use, sorry, Saul's happy to use David. Like David's success, that's, that's useful to Saul. But gradually that worm eats away and he starts to fear David. And interestingly, did you notice verse 12 Saul sees that God is with David. Do you notice that? Like Saul knows that this guy is blessed by God. The reason that's an important detail, right, is that if you remember back in chapter 15, we may have a slide coming up of it. Remember back in chapter 15, um, Samuel had said to Saul, the Lord's torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one who is better than you. Here, guys, in this passage, Saul sees David and he knows this guy is better than me. God is with him. He he looks at David and he can say, you defeated the enemy that I could never defeat. You've saved people in a way that I could could never do. And in his own life, Saul's experienced blessing from David. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, when Saul was tormented, do you remember that? And, And David played the lyre, brought peace to Saul's soul. Saul knows this guy is better than me. But instead of embracing that, instead of laying down his right to the throne, he resents it. That worm eats away at him. And and then he ends up trying to kill him. Verse 11, he tries to remove him by trying to kill him with a spear. And notice chapter 19, verse 1 as well. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Actually, five times in these two chapters, Saul tries to kill him. So jealous. He just wants to remove him. He resents the Messiah, wants to remove him. Just wants him out. And the heart of it all is in verse 7 and 8. He wants the song to be about him. He wants the songs to be about him, not about the Messiah. Now, guys, what's that got to do with us today? Well, look, um, I want to suggest, I think there are three different levels at which us here in the room, we might be making this mistake. Three ways that we can make the mistakes Saul makes here. The first level is just to, to, to fully reject God, Jesus, just to fully reject. Um, I was in a car once uh, with a, a friend um, from my water polo team. Had to mention water polo once, my last sermon. Um, and uh, we were driving back from a match and we got chatting about heaven. And uh, my friend said to me, he was really honest, he said, Look, if I was in heaven, I'd hate it. I was like, Okay, why? He said, Well, because I'd want to kill God so that I could be in charge. <laughs> and I thought, I really don't know what to say to that. Um, uh, <laughs> But he was really, he's being really honest. Now he said it really strongly, right? But actually that, that, that thought is a thought that loads of people have in a different way. That, that idea that if, if, if it means that God is in charge of my life, if it means that he would have to be on the throne, I'm not interested. Maybe people here today, and, and, and if you're honest, that's, that's how you're thinking about God. If it means that he gets to call the shots, no thank you. If it means I'm not in control. No, thank you. Don't want it. To resent, to remove, 
reject. That's one level we can be like Saul. Um, I don't want the Messiah in my life. The second level, not, not, not to fully reject, but just to remove him from certain areas of my life. Um, here's what I mean. When I was uh, a lot, quite a lot younger, I had a time in my life where I'd say I believed in Jesus, so I thought he was my saviour. Um, but if I was honest, I, I thought, look, if I really go for it as a Christian, it's going to spoil my life. Like if I really do what Jonathan does here, like if I really try and go for it, particularly in a couple of areas, the way that I socialise and hang out with my mates, if I really try and put Jesus first there, it's going to spoil my fun. And secondly, in romantic relationships, this is before I was married, um, uh, if I hand that over to him, he's just going to, he'll spoil it. He's going to spoil it. There may be people here today, and if you're honest, that's how you think as well. If I really focus on Jesus... I'll be less happy if I really give him my time, if I really give him my relationships, if I really give him my money. I'll be less happy if he's the focus, I'm going to miss out. Easy to be like that, isn't it? It's the same mistake that Saul is making. Saul thinks if the Messiah's at the centre, I'm going to miss out. Here's a third way. Here's a third level that we can be like Saul, though. Um, we, we want the songs to be about us. Look back at verse 7 and verse 8 with me again. That's the problem. This is the heart of Saul's problem. He wants the songs to be about him. And guys, I don't know about you. I just That is true for me. <laughs> I mean, look, of course, when I'm here on a Sunday, I don't want you to sing about me. <laughs> when I'm here on a Sunday, I'm very happy for us to sing about Jesus. But think about it, midweek, who do you want to see praised through the week? If you look at your heart, who is it that you want to see applauded through the week? Who do you want to be impressive through the week? Is it Jesus <laughs> or is it me? If you look at your ambitions, like what is it? What are your dreams in life? Who do they revolve around? Is it Jesus? Or is it me? You see, Jonathan looks at the Messiah and says, look, everything is about you now. Saul looks at the Messiah and he says, yeah, you're useful to me. I'll use you, but I'm the primary focus. It's like if there was a song about my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be happy for, for Jesus, you're useful to me. <laughs> you're use, I like some of the things that you do for me. And, you know, if there was a song about my life, maybe you'd have some mentions in the verses, but the chorus, I want that to be about me. I'm the primary focus of my ambitions. I want the songs to be about me. I don't know. Maybe, guys, maybe we're more like Saul than we realise. Saul resents the Messiah and wants to remove him. Okay, so those are two responses. Um, we're going to see two implications now, two implications for us today. Firstly, jealousy leads to madness. And then secondly, every knee will bow. So f first implication, jealousy leads to madness. Um, a Saul here through these chapters, he's, he's kind of like a tragic figure in a play. He's kind of like Othello, right? His jealousy just eats him up and destroys him. 
And so I wonder if you notice, it starts in verse 9. He keeps a close eye on David. Then it grows. Verse 12, he starts to fear him. And then if you jump forward to verse 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. See how irrational that is. My daughter really loves this guy. But instead of thinking, okay, maybe I should reconsider, no, I hate him. He's my enemy. So irrational, because that's, that's, that's what jealousy does. It worms its way in, starts eating away. And then in, in chapter 19, um, uh, his, his own son, Jonathan, in verse 4 and 5, starts to beg him. Look at this, this is really interesting. Look at verse 4 with me. He said, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. What he's done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and were glad. His son is begging him, Dad, this guy's a blessing to you. Like he laid his life, put his life on the line to bless you. He's bringing great victories to you. How can you possibly think that removing him is going to improve your life? It's so irrational. And guys, again, the same thing for us with Jesus. It is mad to think that submitting to Jesus is going to spoil my life. He laid his life on the line to save me. How could I ever think that he now wants to make me boring and repressed and miserable? Like he's going to change things. Of course, he'll definitely change things. But he doesn't want to make us miserable. To think that, that submitting to the Messiah is going to ruin my life. That's mad. That's mad. You do see that, don't you? But that's what, that's what happens here. Jealousy makes Saul crazy. And then we get this interesting bit with the evil spirit. Verse 9, an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, but David eluded him. Um, let's deal with that. That's weird. <laughs> um, where it says evil spirit from the Lord there, just one thing you need to know. Um, in Hebrew, there's not a different word for mood and spirit. It's the same word um, for mood and spirit. No, they don't, doesn't distinguish between them. So back in chapter one, when Hannah was uh, really upset, it described her as deeply troubled. That was the same word for, for spirit. Um, her mood was deeply troubled. So guys, I don't, I don't think this is talking about like demon possession. Um, I don't think it's that. I think this is a, a harmful mood slash spirit from God, um, which confirms Saul in the choice he's already made, right? Saul has been feeding that worm in his soul. And it's grown, and it's grown, and it's grown. And here it's like God hands him over to it, confirms him in that choice that he's already made. And that kind of madness takes him and he tries to act out the desire of his heart. He tries to kill the Messiah. Jealousy leads to madness. Now, guys, we do need to, we do need to know this. Um, Romans chapter 1 says, God does give us over to our sinful desires. Um, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. God does, like he does with Saul here, 
He does give us over. If we choose to spend our lives pushing him out, rejecting him, he does give us over to that. He will do that. Jealousy leads to madness. Final implication, final implication. Every knee will bow. Jealousy leads to madness, but every knee will will bow. Um, I wonder if you notice that kind of through this chapter, there's just this inevitable sense that David is going to rise. It's almost like a Batman movie, right? He might get thrown down, but there's just this, you know he's going to rise again. Um, That keeps happening the whole way through uh, this chapter. So, um, Back, chapter 18, verse 10, Saul tried to kill him with a spear, but he, he, he eludes it, verse um, 11, and then verse 14, he has loads of success. Um, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, he tries to, he tries to kill, get his son to kill him, that doesn't work. And then in verse, uh, verse 8, David has loads of success. Uh, and this keeps happening again and again and again through the chapter. Saul tries to sort of hold him down, but he just succeeds. And goes and grows and grows and grows and grows. You get this sense um, through the chapter that the Messiah um, is on the right side of history. Yeah, he's opposed. But he's God, he's the center of God's plans for the world. And so he just keeps succeeding and succeeding and succeeding, no matter what people throw at him. Nothing can stop him. And and right at the end of the chapter, we get this really bizarre scene that kind of illustrates this really, really clearly. Um, So uh, in in, in chapter 19, verse uh, 18, David runs away and he hides with the prophet Samuel from a couple of weeks ago. Um, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 19, um, Saul finds out that's what's going on and he sends a bunch of soldiers after David. And finally, it looks like David's pinned down. He's got nowhere to go. The soldiers are coming. It looks like they're about to finally get him um, and arrest him. And what happens? Well, look at uh, the second half of verse 20. The Spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Right, instead of attacking the Messiah, they kind of end up in this worship session praising God. And that happens three times. More soldiers come, same thing happens. More soldiers come, same thing happens. It's like God's like, you think you're going to kill the Messiah? Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You're going to end up praising me instead. And then eventually Saul himself, you can imagine him being so frustrated that the men are screwing up. Like he rolls up his sleeves like, fine, I'll do it myself. And then he himself sets out. If you look in verse 23, Saul went to Nioth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Nioth. And then verse 24, he stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. Do you notice that in verse 24? What happens with his robes? He lays them down. Do you remember Jonathan at the beginning of the chapter? Lays them down willingly for the Messiah. Here, David unwillingly, but what does he do? Sorry, here Saul unwillingly, what does he do? He lays them down. This Messiah will rule. He is God's king. He is the right side of history. And again, the same thing is true 
of Jesus Christ. So we saw these words earlier in the service from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Um, He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Therefore, what happens? God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. One day, every knee will bow. He is the centre of God's plan for the universe. However, however hard I might try and bend the universe around myself and be the centre of the story, it's not made for me. It's made for him. He is the centre. And one day, every, everyone's going to recognise that. One day, every knee is going to bow to him. Now, we have the choice. I can, I can bow to him now like Jonathan, and then I share in his joy now, share in enjoying all of his success now, and on that day, I'll have an even deeper, greater joy. Or, like Saul, I can resent him, I can resist him, and on that day, I'm still going to bow against my will through gritted teeth, maybe. It's still going to happen. Right now, guys, right now in our lives, Jesus comes to us like David does here. David doesn't force anything on Saul in these chapters. David is just serving him, loving him, being a blessing to him. Jesus Christ comes to us in the form of a servant, offering to serve, offering to forgive us. Even though we so often I make the song about me, Jesus offers to forgive me for that. And to bless me. How do you respond to that Messiah? (laughs) How will you respond to that Messiah this week? Whether you're here just looking into Christian things or whether you've been a Christian your whole life, this week, how will you respond to that Messiah? Loving him, laying everything down, Resenting him, trying to remove him. How will you respond? Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he takes on the nature of a servant to come and die in our place and defeat our greatest enemy. Thank you so much for the love that he shows to us. Lord, teach us, show us, help us to respond rightly to him. He is the center of the universe. He is so much bigger and more beautiful than us and our own little uh, petty ambitions for our lives. Help us, Lord, to like Jonathan, to see the Messiah for who he really is and to respond in love and trust. I pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.